0: Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the podcast, talking about Chapter 10.1, who's, uh, sorry, what is this, uh, Hellfire Club? As I said on the previous one, I've heard of this Hellfire Club from Stranger Things, which is the name of their Dungeons and Dragons clan, but I'm sure, I didn't realise it was a reference to something else, and I'm curious to know what this thing is. Swim says, here George is writing short stories that are eventually collected into The Untilled Field, 1903. A volume of short stories reminiscent of Ivan Turgenev's writing that focuses on drudgery of Irish rural life. I'm not mad at this passage. What's happening now, says Acoustic Eels. He's just writing random short stories mid-book. Laugh out loud. No, says Swim. He's been writing stuff all along. Plays, articles, etc. In this passage, he is describing... Writing the stories and why. Um, Acoustic Heels, good to see you again. Acoustic says, hey, all, I obviously fell off the wagon a month or two ago. fell off the wagon. Uh, Just couldn't get into it, and it was such a slog to read. Plus, I have been busy lately. In the back half of May, I should have some more free time. Should I try to catch up? Has it gotten good lately? I'll listen to the podcast tomorrow so I can hear what you all have to say. Well, there you go. If you listen to yesterday's episode, you'll hear my suggestion, Um, but seeing as you're probably just going to listen to this one, I'll tell you the suggestion. Look, we're halfway through this book, and it's a long book. We've probably read, you know, 100,000 words or more, maybe, at this point. Um, And they're really, for me, at least, and I think swim and tech would probably agree, There really hasn't been much value in those 100,000 words, like 20-odd hours of reading. Uh, Enough that you can pretty reasonably say the next half of this book also will not offer any value. And that's real harsh to say, but let's just be honest, it's been a bad book. You could summarise what happens in each chapter probably in two or three sentences, and he seems to flesh that out to, you know, half hour or 40 minutes of reading, which you can summarize in, you know, less than 30 seconds. So it's really a time waste. And if you're fleshing it out, padding it out, extrapolating, and it's good, like there's value in that extrapolation, it's entertaining or whatever, or interesting or fun or engaging in some way, then there's value in those words. But there just isn't. It just makes... It's just dilly-dallying. It's waffling on. It's what's another good word for it? It's drivel. Is what it is. It's a slog to read. There's no pleasure in it. There's no value in it. That's my opinion. Um so my suggestion was look, do we just get a summary of the remaining, you know, 20 chapters or however many are left, I'm not sure how many. And do one last episode where we summarize each chapter. And call that a finished book in the full knowledge and full confidence that to expand out everything we've just summarised over 20 days would not add any value to any of our lives. Now, the downside to that, of course, is we are 99.5% of the way to the finish line of the Hemingway list. A five-year-plus journey at this point. And what a lasting stain it would be to say we got that far to the the end and then we gave up, you know, that close to the end and gave up. And I know that would always sit in the back of my head. And that's a huge motivation to not do that idea. So we're thinking we're going to keep reading. As you can probably hear, Acoustic heels. I'm (laughs) on a treadmill at the moment. I don't know if you can hear, but I'm a little bit out of breath. That's my new thing. Look, I'm going to have to spend time every day finishing this book, I'm at least going to you know, burn some calories, which I need to do. My thoughts were, you know, once this project's finished, I'm going to swap out this daily habit of podcasting to something like exercising. I just need to, I need to, you know, just for my own health. So I thought, why not just start early? What the heck? So I apologize for the shortness of breath, but that's just how it's going to be. Uh, It's me being, you know, looking after myself, put myself first. Swim says regarding abandoning the reading of the book in favor of the summaries, I offer this analogy. When I lived in Boise, Idaho, I did the annual race to Robble Creek, a half marathon, thirteen point one miles. Self-build as the toughest half marathon in the Northwest, it was hard. Yeah, every year I always wanted to quit. The hardest was when I was five months pregnant. Humble brag. I believe I was literally last that year. I didn't quit any of the races, and the feeling of accomplishment after each race has never left me. There's a link to a story about the race. Never again, it's titled. Regardless of what you decide, and I'll slog reading to the very end. All right. Yeah, look, I feel you. And the analogy is perfect, and that's my motivation to keep reading. So at this point, I'm keeping reading. But what are we doing? Maybe... My endeavor will be, and I've said this before, but just to read as much as possible per day so that there's the minimum amount of days left on this commitment. Of course, now I'm doing it on the treadmill, and because I'm, you know, puffing and puffing, my reading pace is uh, slower. So, whatever. Look, let's just keep reading. I think that's the best thing to do, just keep reading. So here we go. And for two long summers we drove and walked through these neighbourhoods, coming one day upon a picturesque farmhouse, and, wondering who the folk might be that lived within walls as strong as a fortress, we wandered round the house, looking into the great areas. The farmer introduced us to his daughter, a pretty red-headed girl, about twenty, who said they were just going to sit down to tea. And would we join them? Among other things, they spoke... ...of a cousin from America who was coming to Ireland for arrest. He'd been all through Cuba reporting the war for the American papers. Uh, sorry, had to answer the door. Ameri- uh, he had been all through Cuba who, uh, reporting the war for the American papers. He too seemed typical of Ireland and before we reached the moat house i began to see him strolling about tara dreaming of ireland's past till he fell in love with the uh, the farmer's pretty daughter sensing love bridging over for a while intellectual differences and this story seeming to re- me representative of irish life i decided to include it in the collection though in length it did not correspond with the others each story in the volume entitled The Unfilled Unfilled Field Unfilled I thought it was untilled it had helped me to understand my own country but it was while writing The Wild Goose that it occurred to me for the first time that it being impossible to enjoy independence of body and now soul in Ireland the thought of every brave-hearted boy is now to cry now off with my coat so that I may earn 5 pounds to take me out of the country Every race gets the religion it deserves, I said, and only as policemen, pugilists and priests have they succeeded with, here and there, a successful lawyer. The theory of the germ cell floated into my mind. It may be that nature did not intend them to advance beyond the stage of the herdsmen, the finest in the world, I cried, rising from the composition of the wild goose. They were that in the beginning, when the greater part of Ireland was forest and marsh, with great pasture lands through which long herds of cattle wandered from dawn to evening, watching over, watched over by barbarous men in kilts and terrible dogs. And since those days, we have lost the civilization that obtained in the monasteries. We have declined in everything except our cattle, and our herdsmen, the finest in the world, divining the steek. Stake in the Bullock, with the same certainty as the Greek divined the statue in the Block of Marble. My discovery produced in me a kind of rapture and I sat looking at my Monet for a long while, thinking that perhaps after all it is unnecessary for a race to produce pictures or literature or sculpture or music, for to do one thing extremely well justifies the existence of a race. And the beef steaks that Ireland produced justifies as Ireland. In a way, for though the Irish have produced the finest steaks, they have never invented a sauce for the steak. And I fell to thinking that if some meditative herdsman, while leaning over a gate, had been inspired to compose a sauce whereby the steak might be eaten with relish, the Irish race would be able to hold up its head in the world. One finds excuses always for one's country's shortcomings, and it pleases me to think that it, if none had imagined sauce baronades, it was because his attention was always needed to keep the cattle from straying. There were wolves in Ireland, always lurking round the herd, ready to separate the heifer or calf from the protection of the bulls. But to find an excuse for the monks dwelling in commodious monasteries is more difficult, the talk of the monks must have been frequently about the pleasures of the table, yet none was inspired to go to the prior with the sacred word, baronese, upon his lips. That word would have secured in an immortality as secure as chatter-brained, who is read no more, but is eaten every day. The intellect perishes, but the belly is always with us. Or may we acquit the race of lack of imagination and lay the blame upon the Irish language, which is perhaps too harsh and bitter for such a buttery word as baronet's, and could a language in which there is no butter be capable of inventing a succulent sauce? It may be that the Irish language was intended for the sale of bullocks a language that has never been to school, as Johnny Glinton once said, If it had only fled to the kitchen one might forgive it for having played truant. The Irish language, a language that has never been spoken in a drawing room, only in rude towers, and very like those towers are the blocks of rough sound that a Gaelic speaker hurls in his audience when he speaks, whereas one can hardly imagine any other language but French being spoken along the beautiful winding roads of France, lined with poplar trees and about the hillsides dotted with red-hilled roofs and behind the pierced green shutters which enchant us when we see them as the train moves on towards Paris from Amiens. The French language is implicit in the balconies, lanterns, perrons that we see as the train nears Paris, and still more implicit in the high-pitched roofs of the chateau of Fontainebleau, when Alamese and Alatez come naturally into conversation. In a trice we leave the court of Louis XV for a fete at Milun, and there, though the past tenses are no longer in use, the language still sparkles, it foams and goes to the head, a lovely language, very like champagne. True that the English language has never been much in the kitchen, nor in the vineyard, but it has been spoken in the dales and along the downs, and there is a finer breeze in it than there is in French, and a bite in it, like Elizabethan ale, all the same, a declining language. Thee and thou have been lost beyond hope of restoration, and many words that I remember in common use are now nearly archaic. A language wearied with childbearing, and I pondered the endless poetry of England, and admitted English literature to be the most beautiful, Boer War or no Boer War, whereas the Irish language, notwithstanding its declensions and its grammatical use of thee and thou, has failed. As Bergin said once to me, we did nothing with it when we had it. By this did he mean that the Irish race was never destined to rise above the herdsman, and if he did, his instinctive judgment is important. It shows that we now, we know ourselves. We said, we see, I cried, the rump stake in the animal as clearly as the Greek saw the statue in the marble, and the epigram pleased me so much that I felt I must go out at once to collogue with somebody But it was eleven o'clock, and no one is available at that hour, but dear Edward, a few hundred yards, are as nothing to one with a passion for literary conversation, and away I went down Ellie Place, across Marion Row, through Marion Street, and as soon as the the corner of Clare Street was turned, I began to look out for the light above the tobacconist's shop. The light was there. My heart was as faint as a lover's, and the serenade which I used to beguile him down from his book's rose to my lips, it will only answer to this one, or to a motive from the ring, and it is necessary to whistle very loudly, for the trams make a great deal of noise, and Edward sometimes dozes on the sofa. On the other side is a public house, and the serenading of Edward draws comments from the toppers as they go away, wiping their mouths, One has to choose a quiet moment between the trams, and when the serenade has been whistled twice, the light of Edward's candle appears, coming very slowly down the stairs, and there he is in the doorway. If anything larger than life, in the voluminous grey trousers, and over his shoulders a buff jacket which he wears in the evening, two short flights of stairs, and we are in his room, it never changes, the same litter from day to day, from year to year, The same old broken mahogany furniture, the same musty wallpaper, dusty manuscripts lying about it in heaps, and many dusty books. If one likes a man, one likes his habits, and never do I go into Edward's room without admiring his old prints that he tacks to the wall, and looking through the books on the great round table, or admiring the little sofa between the round table and the Japanese screen which Edward bought for a few shillings down on the quays, keys, sorry. A torn, dusty, ragged screen, but serviceable enough it keeps out the draft. And Edward is especially susceptible to drafts, the very slightest will give him a cold. Between the folds of the screen we find a small harmonium of about three octaves, and on it a score of palestrina. As well might one try to play the mass upon a flute, and one can only think that it serves to give the keynote to a choir boy. And on the table is a candlestick made out of white tin, designed probably for Edward himself, for it holds four candles. He prefers candles for reading, but he snuffs them when I enter, and lights the gas, offers me a cigar, refills his church warden, and closes his book. What book are you reading, Edward? I'm reading Ruskin's Modern Painters, but it is very long and rather prosy, and the fifth volume is inexpressibly tedious. It doesn't seem to me that I shall ever get through it. But if it doesn't interest you, why do you read it? Oh, I don't like to leave a book. You prefer reading a tiresome book to my conversation? But you live so far away. How far, Edward? 500 yards? And after dinner, I like to get home to my pipe, you see. I'm at business all day. I have business relations with a great number of people. Our lives aren't the same, and I assure you that in the evening, a quiet hour is a luxury to me. But how can you find business to do all day? There is mass in the morning, and the angelus at twelve... I know what all that kind of talk is worth, and Edward puffed sullenly at his church warden while I assured him that I was thinking of his play. (coughs) All this public business, I said, leaves very little time for your work. In the afternoon between four and seven I get a couple of hours. Yesterday I had a run, I got off thirty lines, but today I'm stuck again and shall have to invent something to get one of the characters off the stage naturally. You see, I'm still in a pencil stage. In about two years I shall be in ink. And then I'll give you the play to read. As my help would not be needed for the next two years, it seemed that to me that I might speak of the wild goose, and Ed would listen to giving his whole mind to the story. But why, he asked, should Ned Carmody object to his wife suckling her baby? He fears that it might spoil her figure. Is that so? I didn't know, and he puffed at the pipe in silence. But do you think Ned Carmody would bother? You think it introduces a streak of Sir Frederick Leighton, but who can say that an ascetic aspiration may not break out, even in Celt? Who is but a herdsman, the finest in the world? And I launched my epigram. But it met with no response. Edward's face deepened into monumental solemnity and understood that the proposition that the Irish race was not destined to rise above the herdsman was too disagreeable to be entertained. Shutting our eyes to facts will not change the facts." In the 8th and 9th centuries, the decline of art was coincident with the union of the Irish Church with Rome. Till then, Ireland was a Protestant country. A Protestant country, St. Patrick, a Protestant. Protestant in the sense that he merely preached Christianity and the Irish Church was Protestant up to the 11th or 12th century. I don't know the exact date. I crossed the room to get myself another cigar and returned muttering something about a peasant people that had never risen out of the vague emotions of the clan. We were talking about a very interesting question that as soon as the Irish Church became united to Rome, art declined in Ireland. That isn't a matter of opinion, but of fact. Edward spoke of the penal laws, but the penal laws are not hereditary, like syphilis. And Father Tom admits that Irish Catholics have written very little. Edward was curious to hear if I still went for bicycle rides in the country with Father Tom, and smoked cigarettes with him in his bedroom. What can it matter how intimate my relations may or may not be with Father Tom? We all are talking now on a serious subject, Edward, and I was about to tell you when you interrupted me that one evening, as I was walking around the green with Father Tom, I said to him, it is strange that Catholics have written so little in Ireland. It is indeed, he answered, and may is a case in point. After a hundred years of education, it has not succeeded in producing a book of any value, not even a theological work. I don't know that Father Tom has produced anything very wonderful himself. Very likely he hasn't. Father Tom's lack of original literary inspiration is a matter of no importance to anyone except to Father Tom. The question before us is which is at fault, the race or Catholicism? Edward would not admit that it could be Catholicism. Don't you think that yourself... Have suffered, I said, as I went down the stairs. You burned a volume of poems, and if Father Tom had not abandoned the psychology of religion, he would have found himself up against half a dozen heresies before he had written 50 pages. It seemed to me that I was on the threshold of a great discovery. And we push on. That's the end of chapter 10. Uh, 10? Yeah. And I'm going to keep reading Chapter Eleven, highly favoured indeed am I among authors? I said, pushing upon pushing open the wicket, but before many turns had been taken up and down the greens wood, I began to fear that my reading had been too particular. My heart sank at the prospect of the years I should have to spend in the National Library, for a knowledge of all the literature of the world was necessary for the writing of the article I had in my mind. Then, with a rising heart, I remembered that I could engage the services of some poor scholar John Eglinton knew for certain many who had read everything without having learnt to make use of their lang- learning. My quickest way will be to lay the nose of one of these fellows on the scent. He will run it through many literatures.' And with the results of his reading before me, I shall be able to deal Catholicism such a blow as has not been dealt since the Reformation. A light breeze rustled the lilacs, and I stood for a long time forgetful of my idea, seeking within the long pointed leaves for the blossom breaking into purple and white, thinking that the tranquil little path under the bushes was just the one Peter would choose for philosophic meditation. But feeling that the sunlight beguiled my mind into thought, I wandered round the garden, still thinking, but noticing all the while the changes that had come into it within the last few days. The great ash by the garden gate seemed to be making some progress. The catkins are gone, and in about three weeks, the plummy foliage will be fluttering in the light breezes of the summertime. The laburnum blossom is still enclosed in grey green, ears about the size of a caterpillar, I added, with here and there a spot of yellow, and pondering on nature's unending miracles, I walked under the hawthorns, stopping, of course, to admire the hard little leaves, like the medals that Catholics wear, I said on my way to the corner where the Solomon seal flourishes year after year, and the blooms of the everlasting pea creep up the wall nine or ten feet to the level of the street, hard by the rosemary, which should perfume the whole garden. But the smoke from Plunkett's chimney robs the flowers of their perfume, the little blooms, blossoms, the little blossom, freckling the dark green spiky foliage, held me at gaze. Above the rosemary is thick ivy, it was clipped close a few years ago, but it is again swarming up the wall, and Gogarty, the arch mocker, the author of all the jokes that enable us to live in Dublin, Gogarty, the author of the limericks of the golden age, the youngest of my friends, full in the face with a smile in his eyes and always a witticism on his lips, overflowing with quotation, called yesterday to ask me to send a man with a shears, saying, your ivy is threatening my slates, a survival of the bardic age he is, reciting whole ballads to me, when we go for walks, and when I tell him my great discovery, he will say, sparrows and sweet peas are as incompatible as literature and dogma, and you will cut the ivy, won't you? And wandering across the greensward, I came to my apple trees, now in bridal attire. Not a petal yet fallen, but tomorrow, or the day after, the grass will be covered with them, I said. Gogarty told me yesterday how the poet rose early to see the daisy open. He describes himself a kneeling always till it unclosed was upon the soft day sweet day small a grass but if he liked the grass so much why did he love the daisy for if sparrows and sweet peas are incompatible it may be said with equal truth that the daisy is the grass's natural enemy and worse than daisies are dandelions a few still remain though poison was poured upon them last year my flower beds are a sad spectacle, wallflowers straggling, sad are they as Plunkett's beard. Sweet peas once grew there, the first year a tall hedge sprung up despite the college of science, for the soil was almost virgin then, and it sent forth plenty of Canterbury bells, columbine poppies and larkspur. But year by year my flowers have died, and the garden will now grow only a few lilies and pinks. Carnations, larkspur, poppies. At that moment a smut fell across my knuckles and looking up I saw a great black cloud issuing from the chimney of the College of Science. Isn't it a poor thing that all my flowers should die? So that a few students should be allowed the privilege of burning their eyelids for the sake of Ireland. My garden is but a rude and the only beauty it can boast is of is its grass and apple trees. One tree as large as a house, under whose boughs I might dine in the summertime, were it not for the smuts from Plunkett's chimney. One of its great boughs is dying, and will have to be cut away, lest it should poison the rest of my tree. My garden is but a rood, and following the walk around the garden, the square of glad grass, I am back again in a few minutes, admiring tall bushes flourishing over the high wall, and as if to greet me the robin sings a little round delay that he utters all the year, a saucy little bird that will take bread from my hand in winter. But now it is easy to see. He is thinking of his mate, whose nest is in the great tangle of traveller's joy that covers the southern wall, somewhere near the bush where a thrust is sitting on her eggs, not so bold a bird as the robin, my curiosity, last year drove her from her eggs, and it will be well for me to walk the other way. Now, which will my countrymen choose, literature or dogma? It is difficult to think in a garden where amorous birds are going hither and thither, so amorous that one cannot be interested in them. If one had to think about books, one would choose to think of a Gogarty's extravagances or Gogarty's remembrances of the poet's and these would be especially pleasant while a blackbird is singing the same rich lay that he sang by a lake's edge a thousand years ago. A blackbird delighted the hermits of old time, those that were poets, and we are grateful to one for having recorded this pleasure in the bird's song, and for the adjective that defines it, and the coon who discovered the old Irish poem and translated it. My garden is an enchantment in the spring, and I sit bewitched by the sunlight and by my idea. A man of letters goes into the garden with an idea. He and his idea spend happy days under apple bows in the sun. He plays with his ideas as a mother with her child, chasing it about the lilac bushes. Sometimes the child cries with rage, and the mother cannot pacify her baby, but however naughty her baby may be, she never wearies. Her patience is endless, and the patience of a man of letters is endless too. His idea becomes unmanageable but he does not weary of it, and then his idea grows up, just like the child, passing from blue smock and sash into knickerbockers, in other words, into typewriting, and as every mother looks back upon the days of smocks and sashes, we authors look back upon the days when our ideas were meditated in a garden, within hearing of amorous sparrows in the ivy, the soft coo, for it is nearly a nest, the shrill of the starling and the reiterated little rigmarole of the chaffinch, The swallows arrive in Dublin in the middle of May. They fly over my garden in June evenings, and I continue to think of them coming hither and thither over the sea like my thoughts, I said, and while listening to the breeze in the apple boughs, my thoughts drift unconsciously across the centuries of the beginning of Christian literature. It began, while I said, with the confessions of that most sympathetic of saints, Augustine, who was not all theology, but began his life and began it well, in free thought and free love, his mistress and his illegitimate child endear him to us, and the music of his prose, those beautiful pages where he and Monica, his mother, stand by a window overlooking the Tiber. We are all spirit while we read the flight of his soul and Monica's Godwood, each sentence lifting them a little higher till he and she seem to dissolve before our eyes in white rapture. I have read that Augustine owed something of the ecstasy of his style, to the Alexandrian mystics, and this is not unlikely, for he came from Africa and saw the end of paganism and the beginning of Christianity. He was Julian's contemporary, a thing which never struck anybody before. Augustine and Julian, how wonderful. Landor should have thought of the learned Twain as a subject for dialogue, or Shakespeare might have taken Julian for hero. The ascetic Emperor was a subject for him. But I am thinking casually, Shakespeare could not have done much with Julian, so perhaps it is well that one day the sudden interruption of his secretary, Ben Jonson, jerked his thoughts away from Julian leaving the Emperor for Ibsen, two rather clumsy dramas, Emperor and Galleon, containing however many splendid scenes, but there was more in Julian than the bleak Norwegian could understand. And Ibsen does little more than follow the bare outline that history gave him, including, of course, the story of the old priest sitting on the steps of a fallen temple with a goose in his lap, the only trace of ancient worship that the emperor could discover in the countries he passed through while leading his army against the Persians. Were Gergati here, he would tell me the verses in which Swinburne includes the emperor's last words. Unable to remember them, I loiter, amused by the paraphrase of the lines from the hymn of Prosperine, that the circumstance of the moment had put into my head. Thou hast conquered, O pale Galileo, the world has moved on since thy death, we cared hardly tuppence for Leo and on Pius, we waste not our breath. The last line is weak, I said, so weak that I must ask Degarty to alter it, but I like the world has moved on since thy death. I should, like Ibsen's Julian better, if some reason for the Emperor's opposition to the Christianity were given, a mere caprice for the ancient divinity is not enough for a philosopher who might have foreseen the Middle Ages. A vision for him would have been a procession of monks, and over against them the light of the Renaissance beginning among the Tuscan hills. I should like him to have foreseen Borgia. But which... Would he have liked Alexander or Caesar? Neither. Their paganism was not at all of the kind that appealed to Julian, and the revival of Christianity with Luther at its head would have shocked him more than the gross materialism into which he, it had declined. He would have hated the Christian monk who said that every man likes a wife with rosy cheeks and white legs, which is true of every man except Julian who chose for wife wife one whose age might be pleaded for his abstinence from her bed. Julian is one of nature's perversities none but nature herself would have thought of setting up an ascetic mystic to oppose Christianity, a real believer. For he prayed at the ancient shrines, looking on the gods not merely as symbols, but like many of his predecessors, but as divine entities. But after his death the belief, nourished like a grain of mustard seed, that the secret of life and death had been discovered in a monastery, and men no longer went to the academies of arts, but into the wilderness to interpret the fable according to their temperaments. Christianity was soon split up into sects, all of variance one with the other. Texts which could not be explained by common sense were disputed by the theologians, till the founding of a town became less important than the meaning of a text that one, he knew, her not till she had brought forth her first born son was the cause of much perplexity and comment. The opinions of the theologians being divided, many going further than the strict letter of the text, averring that nothing had ever happened under the cult of Galilee before or after the birth of the Saviour, Joseph, being a virgin even as Mary, and battles were fought and many slain because men could not agree about the meaning of the word filuque. The world went clean mad about the new god, just came over from Asia. Gods had been coming for some 700 years. The first, or one of the first, was Mithras, and he had obtained a very considerable following. None can say why he failed to capture Europe. He brought the Trinity with him, I think, certainly the sacraments, but he forgot the pathetic story of the Passion. Mark wrote it well, and his excellent narrative turned the scale Mithras was many hundred years before Jesus, and he was succeeded by Dash. My scholar would come in useful here. He would furnish me with lists of gods, whereas the only names that come up in my mind at the moment are Adonis, Sibel, Atis, Isis, Serapis. But there are many more. Christian heresies came like locusts from the desert. Arians, Nestorians, Donatists, Manichaeans. A century or a century and a half later, the Mohammedans poured out of Arabia, crying Allah, Allah, and round Persia and Asia Minor, fighting their way along the north of Africa, crossing the Straits into Spain, getting through the Pyrenees and the south of France as far as Tours. The French seem to have been especially created to save us from Asiatics. They defeated Attila and at Chelons, 200 years before, his god would have plagued us with theology. He was plain Mr. Booty. But, if it had not been for the defeat of the Arabs at Tours, we might all have been Mohammedans, and the question arises whether the succeeding centuries would have been crueler under Allah than they were under Jesus. The Middle Ages were the cruelest of all the centuries, and the most ignorant. It would be difficult to choose between... Byzantine mosaics and arabesques. Literature disappeared after the death of Augustine. Catholicism claims the cathedrals. The claim is a valid one, and it claims Dante, born in 1265, the great anti-cleric. He who walks before men's eyes like a figure risen from a medieval tomb, pedantic, cruel, unclean like the Middle Ages, venting his hatred on popes, cardinals, bishops, priests, and on his own countrymen, hating them with the hatred of his own Asiatic god, But Dante is likewise the tremulous lover. There is the poet of the Vita Nuova and the poet of the Divine Comedy. Lando reveals both to us. The first in a love scene in a garden between Dante and Beatrice, the lovers have wandered from some fate in progress in the garden itself or in an adjacent house to some quiet marble seat shaded by myrtles. And in the dialogue we see... Dante, pale and tremulous with passion, and Beatrice admonishing him with grave eyes and the wisdom of the seraphic doctor whom Dante met in the paradise. One thinks of Tristan, the second act, when Beatrice begs her lover not to take her hand violently, she recognises him as her heir to all eternity, and her own mission to inspire him to write the poem which will outlast all other poems and make them, and their love, wander forever among the generations, not in this dialogue, but in another. Lander sets Petrarch, and Boccaccio discoursing on their great contemporary. Petrarch only saw Dante once. Boccaccio never saw him, but they talk about him as a contemporary. Lander does not seek to differentiate between Boccaccio's criticism of Dante and Petrarch's. Ideas are impersonal, and every wise remark about Dante might have been uttered by either speaker. But would Petrarch have accepted the statement that less than a twentieth part of the Divine Comedy is good, as representing his own opinions. And will Boccaccio admit that he loved the Divine Comedy merely because it brought himself happier dreams? It is Petrarch who says that the filthiness of some passages in the Divine Comedy would disgrace the drunkenest horse dealer, and that the names of such criminals are recorded by the poet, as would be forgotten by the hangman in six months. A little later in the dialogue, Boccaccio reminds Petrarch that the scenes from The Inferno... The Purgatorio and the Paradiso are little more than pictures from the walls of churches turned into verse, and that in several of these we detect the cruelty, the satire, and the indecency decency of the Middle Ages. Yes, and Bacchiero adds that he does not see the necessity for three verses out of six of the third canto of the Inferno, and he does not hesitate to say that there are passages in which he cannot find his way, and where he suspects the poet could not show it to him. Petrarch answers quickly, Dante not only throws together the most opposite and distant characters, he even makes Jupiter and the saviour the same person. In a prose lofty and hallowed, the Italian poets continue their ingenious fault-finding page after page, but neither doubts the justice of placing Dante higher than any other Latin poets. It is disappointing that I cannot remember to whom to attribute. They have less hair cloth about them, and smell less cloisterly, Yet they are only choristers. It sounds more like Boccaccio and Petrarch and his placing of Dante above the Latin poets in Dears' Wonderlander, for he loved the Latin poets and understood them very well. He was the last of the Latinists and we can imagine Horace Reading Lander's Latin verses with a certain appreciation, saying if he had been born in Italy he might have been amongst us. Horace would relish Lander's wisdom, but is it sure? Is it certain that Lander's wisdom would not seem oppressive at times? Wisdom is strange as an author from his fellows, and in no writer does the intellect shine more clearly than in Lander. His intellect... Enabled him to admire all that Dante owed to the Renaissance and to forget the hair shirt. As well as I remember neither poet refers to Dante's anti clericism. It imp, its importance was overlooked by Lander, but Boccio and Petrarch would not have overlooked it, either might have approved or disapproved, but one of the other one or the other would have mentioned it, and Petrarch might have had qualms for the faith of the next generation, he might have foreseen easily that the anti-clericism of one generation would be followed by pagan revival. And this is what happened. Borgia was on the throne. Two hundred years later, when a reactionary priest was being told that everybody was prepared to admit, in theory, that Jesus was an interesting figure. But for the moment, everybody was anxious to talk about the new torso that had been unearthed. But Instead of running to see the Greek god and contributing to the general enthusiasm by praise of the pectoral muscles, Savonarola gathered a few disciples about him and told the people that a much greater discovery would have been a part of the tree on which the saviour hung. Of course, Borgia did not like singing, signing the order for the burning of Savonarola and his monks, but he could... Uh, sorry, but he could not allow the Renaissance to be stopped. And if he had not intervened, the Renaissance would have stopped at Fra Angelico. pinturicchio might have been allowed to continue his little religious anecdotes, but Mantegna would have been told that his vases and draperies hark back to the heathen before Christ was. And as likely as not, Botticelli's light-hearted women might have had tears painted into their eyes. The world had had enough of the Middle Ages, and the reaction was a Pope who loved his own daughter, Lucretia, and ordered the murder of his own son. Or was it Caesar who planned this murder? A wonderful day it was when he pursued the Pope's chamberlain into the Vatican and stabbed him to death in his father's arms, for such a deed attests perhaps better than any argument, that men's thoughts are turned definitely from the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of earth had been swallowed up in theology for some eight or nine centuries, and it was the genius of the 16th century to disinter it, and to make merry in it, without giving a thought to the superman, the silly vanity of the Christian gone wrong, in this re-arisen kingdom were all the arts, sculpture, painting, literature, and music, and with the discovery of America, the world seemed indefinitely enlarged. A hint was in the air that the world moved. Borgia sat on the papal chair. Caesar, his son, might have succeeded him, and with the genius of Italy, insurgent since 1265 behind him, it is not unlikely that he would have triumphed where Napoleon failed. Machiavelli tells us that Caesar's plans were well laid and would not have miscarried had it not been for a certain fatal accident. He is eating of the poisoned meats at a banquet which Alexander had prepared for a dozen cardinals, his enemies. Alexander ate two of these meats, and being an old man succumbed to the poison. Caesar recovered partially, and when he staggered convalescent from his bed, he was told that his father had been a fortnight in the tomb, and that a new pope entirely, out of sympathy with the Renaissance, had been elected. Caesar had to withdraw from Rome and Nepi where he nearly died of a second attack, of what? Of Roman fever, for I do not believe in the story of poisoned meats. The French were on foot for Naples, and having nowhere to lay his head, he begged permission to return to Rome. My gardener's rake ceased suddenly, and opening my eyes, I saw him snail-hunting among the long blades of the irises. It had been raining in the morning, he would get a good many, and my thoughts dropped back into a pleasant meditation regarding the nature of man and our lack of reverence for Caesar, who represented more than any other, anyone who ever lived, the qualities that have enabled men to raise themselves above the lower animals. He was, I remember now, allowed to return to Rome, but no sooner was he there than it became plain to him that it would be useless to resume the cardinalate, which he had abandoned. He had no chance of being elected to the papacy the late Pope having created many new cardinals, all of whom were determined to oppose him. But Caesar had influence among the Spanish cardinals, and he proposed their votes to Julius in exchange for the offer of standard-bearer to the Church. Julius agreed, but Caesar was deprived of the office, or perhaps it was never given to him. It seems a pity that Catholic history should be robbed of so picturesque an event, as the ascension of Caesar to the papacy. and But the next best thing happened. Another Renaissance pope was elected, Julius II, a warrior, but who entered Mirandola, sword in hand, and gave Rome back to the paganism of Machiel, Angelo, Raphael, del Sarto, Leonardo da Vinci, and Donatello. All the Ninja Turtles. These five great artists lived contemporaneously and in a city called Florence, at that time not much bigger than Rathmese, every one of them as pagan as Caesar himself in their lives and as Phidias in their art. Were Tonks here, he would at once interrupt me for his paint, he, for he paints anecdotes, and very anxious to defend his principles, he would say, explain yourself, and if I know him, he would ask why the art of Michel- Michelangelo is as pagan as that of Phidias. My answer would be that the last judgment is not an anecdote but merely a pretext for drawing, and that Michelangelo chose it for the same reason as Phidias chose Olympus because it gave him an opportunity of exhibiting man in all his attributes and perfections in the holy family. Raphael discovers a like opportunity and to make the Four seem more beautiful he placed a child in her arms and another against her knees. Leonardo was not less a pagan than Raphael. It was pagan mysticism that inspired Our Lady of the Rocks and Saint Anne and these pictures would certainly have been admired by the apostate Thou hast not conquered Galilean, he would have cried, out when he raised his eyes to the great temple that Michelangelo was building for the glory of the Roman Emperor. He would have believed in Tessel, who went along the road, shaking his money box, crying as your money falls into my till, your soul will jump out of hell, for he attached great importance to medals and amulets, but on meeting Luther... He would have said, why, this is Christianity over again. St. Paul re-arisen. Julian hated St. Paul and wrote, confuting his doctrines. And he would have written against Luther, who ever since his visit to Rome had been translating the scriptures and praying that grace might be given to Rome and to regain her lost Christianity, the very Christianity that Julian had striven against in the 4th century. A democratic Christianity... Without a hierarchy, without external forms, in the heart dear to Luther, whose teaching was that, since Christ died on the cross to save our souls, and left a gospel for our guidance. It may be assumed that he left one that could be comprehended by everybody, assumed that he left one, oh, sorry. otherwise he had died in vain. And everybody wondered why he had not understood before that Christianity is a personal thing given into every man's own keeping, whereby he may save his own soul or lose it. The priest came comes between me and Christ, was the universal cry in North Germany. England followed Germany, and the spirit of the Reformation swept through Sweden, Norway, Holland, France. Their eldest daughter of the church nearly went over to Protestantism, Henry the uh, Ninth declaring that he would become a Catholic for the sake of Paris. The papacy was in tragic times, two thirds of Europe had slipped away from her, and to save the third that remained, a council assembled at Trent. The shell has been cracked, and we are at the kernel of the argument that hitherto everybody had gone his own way and thought very much as he pleased. But at Trent, the church drew a circle about faith and morals, forbidding speculation on the meaning of life, and that the conduct of life and arranging the catholic's journey from the cradle to the grave as carefully as one any tour planned by that excellent firm messrs cook and sons he who puts himself in the hands of this firm does not waste time inquiring out the departure and the arrival of trains and steamboats edward knows that if he goes to confession his sins will be forgiving him That if he misses Mass, he is guilty of mortal sin. If he loses his temper of venial sin. If he didn't believe these things, he wouldn't be a Catholic. So, there we are. And all this is as simple as Columbia's egg. But how strange that nobody should have seen before that Catholicism is an intellectual desert. And there you go, that's the end of chapter 11. Thanks for listening. See you guys tomorrow.